1: Following his victory at Hastings, William the Conqueror swept all before him. That is, until he crossed swords with a rebel called Hereward the Wake. In a feature in the December issue of BBC History magazine, Matt Lewis reveals how an uprising led by Hereward defied the Normans and inspired generations of English writers. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Matt describes Hereward's extraordinary life and legacy. So Matt, we're going to talk today about Hereward the Wake, who, as
4: you describe in your feature in the December issue of BBC History magazine, led an uprising against William the Conqueror from the fens of what's now Cambridgeshire in 1070. Now, before we look at Hereward and his rebellion in greater detail, I wonder if you could paint a picture for our listeners of the state of play in England when Hereward arrived on the scene. How complete was the Norman Conquest? And how was this new regime being received by the native population?
5: I think the Norman Conquest, we look back with hindsight now and think that, you know, it happened and it was never overturned, and that was it. But I think if you were in the, the heat of what was going on after 1066, so into 1068, 1069, when we have lots of rebellions in the north, and then all of this kicks off with Heriwood around the fens in sort of 1070, 1071, it might have looked a bit more precarious than we look back on it now. Um the new regime wasn't received. Particularly well at all, because what you effectively have is a new Norman French elite coming over and taking all the best jobs. You know, they're taking all the land, they're taking everybody's property, they're kicking out all of the old Anglo-Saxon structures of power and all of the people with it, and that includes abbots and and bishops and things like that in the church. These are all being slowly, and maybe not even so slowly, replaced by Norman candidates. So the very top layers of English society switch almost overnight from being Anglo-Saxon people to being Norman people who don't speak the language, don't understand how the country works or anything like that. So it's a real hard overnight change. And there is lots of resistance against that. Um, And I think William finds himself quite wobbly. He faces at one point lots and lots of different threats from all sorts of other places. And I think in some of his reactions to that, things like the harrying of the north um, and the dealings with the Danish army that we'll talk about later, we see that he is worried. He is slightly panicked about how many of these things he can realistically deal with at once if he wants to hold on to his throne. So we know these castles are springing up all over England. That's a new innovation for the English population to deal with. But it allows this Norman elite minority to effectively control the countryside and the people of England. So, I would say that we look back and think the Norman Conquest was a done deal after Hastings. It probably wasn't anywhere near that simple. Albeit, the Normans had good structures in place to impose themselves on the English. Now, you
4: mentioned there the the harrying of the north, which was well known for its for its brutality. What I wanted to know was to what extent was that brutality the product of William's paranoia about the state of
5: play in England at the time? I think it may well be a symptom of the fact that he felt the need to really lash out against resistance to him. He he needed this iron grip on England. And if these pockets of rebellion kept breaking out, it it encouraged more of them, effectively. So I think there's an element of him looking to come down really hard. The harrying of the North. Also, famously involved a character called Edgar the Etheling, who is this figure who appears to have been appointed an heir to Edward the Confessor. In the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Hastings, he's proclaimed by some as the new King of England. And then William comes along and obviously stamps himself on the scene. And Edgar is a really fascinating character. He hovers around for years and years, sort of rebelling against. William the Conqueror, but then being forgiven in a way that you feel like William wouldn't forgive anybody else. There's obviously something about Edgar that gets him off the hook all the time. But Edgar is involved in some of these uprisings in the north. And that possibly makes them even more serious because here is a legitimate potential candidate to the Anglo-Saxon throne of England. So William does come down really, really hard on it. And you know, the the monks pour scorn on William for the way he reacts in the north of England. He goes up there and, you know, burns everything in sight and scars the countryside. And we're told that it leaves marks for generations. It depopulates vast areas of the north of England. And I think perhaps it's a huge overreaction that shows William's insecurity and fear in the face of particularly Edgar Etheling, what could be a very serious threat to him. So let's turn to Herowood
4: then what do the sources tell us about his life before he took up arms against
5: William? Yeah, the sources we have for Heriwood are a little bit tricky, so we're probably leaning quite hard into some suppositions in his story here, um, particularly the more adventurous and maybe far-fetched parts of them. But he does appear in several sources. He's in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. He appears in the Crowland Chronicle, which was written at Crowland Abbey in Lincolnshire. He appears in the Liber Eliensis, which is an account of the Isle of Ely, which is central to Heriwood's story. And he also gets his own biography called the Jester Heriwadi, the the Deeds of Heriwood. And this, we think, was probably compiled in the early 12th century, so maybe 50-odd years after Heriwood's career. It may have been pulling together lots of contemporary documentation, but it effectively operates as a biography of Heriwood. And the jester has lots to tell us about when Harrywood was was young. Before he gets into this rebellion, we're told effectively that he's a bit of a pain in the neck in his late teens. He seems to have been a, a local thug, so he's always fighting with his neighbours. We're even told that he would take part in local wrestling contests, and if he didn't win, he would pull out a sword and demand to be handed the win. Um, so it's, they talk about him, you know, winning more by the strength of his sword than he ever did by the strength of his arm. And so I think we're meant to take from all of this that Heriwood was a kind of wayward, directionless young man. So he may have had raw strength and talent, but he had no focus as a young boy. And in the end, Heriwood's father actually gets to the point where he's had enough of his son's poor behaviour and the complaints of the rest of the community around them. And he asks the king, who would have been Edward the Confessor at the time, to banish his son for him. Um... The one point of this story that's interesting as well is the connection that Heriwood's father clearly has to the king. Um we we think he was probably what we would call a thane, so a retainer of a king who sits just beneath the kind of a the highest level of the nobility. He's not a nobody, he's not a country bumpkin. His father is clearly a fairly wealthy, powerful landowner. So maybe not at the top tier of of Anglo-Saxon society, but not too far from it. His father would have controlled a fair part of land. He would have had a direct line to the king, may well have acted as an advisor and a counsellor to the king. But Edward agrees to Heriwood's father's request and banishes him from the kingdom and forces him to head off into exile. And then we get this kind of series of adventures while Heriwood is in exile. He starts out in Cornwall, where he stumbles across this local tyrant who's called Ulcus Ferris, which is Latin for iron saw, which is a great name if you want to be a tyrant, yeah. Um, and he's terrorizing the region and he's taken this Cornish princess hostage and is trying to marry her. And so Harrywood suddenly seems to come over all noble and selfless, and he intervenes in this, uh, fights a duel with Ulcus Ferris and kills him and frees the princess. So she's incredibly grateful. But she's also worried that some of Olcas Ferris's men may come after Heriwood. So she packs him off to Ireland and suggests he goes there. And once Heriwood gets to Ireland, he seems to befriend the son of the King of Ireland. Uh, You know, as you do, turn up in a new country and just befriend the prince. Um, He joins a military effort that's starting uh, against the Duke of Munster, who is resisting the king. He performs so well in this army that his reputation just soars and everybody's begging him to stay around. And then he he gets word from this same Cornish princess that she's now in Ireland, but she's been kidnapped again um, by a local magnate who's trying to marry her. And she calls on Heriwood to come and save her again. He manages to do this, and she eventually marries this Irish prince that Heriwood is friendly with. And despite them all begging Heriwood to stay, he seems to get itchy feet and wants to head off again. And we're told he's trying to get back to Cornwall at this point, but his boat is blown around in a storm. And he finds himself shipwrecked and washed up on the shores of Flanders. And there seems to have been some initial concern that maybe he was a, a foreign spy, but he ends up being accepted because another part of the story is he seems to have this irresistible personality. You know, if you spend too long around Harrywood, you're going to like him. Um, and he joins the army of the son of the Count of Flanders. And this is one of the rare figures in the book who we're given a name for, uh, and that the son of the Count of Flanders is named as Robert. And he might, he just might have been Robert the Frisian, who ends up as Count of Flanders between 1071 and 1091. So we may be able to tie him to a real figure in history. And while he's in Flanders too, carving out this ever-increasing military reputation, he also catches the eye of a beautiful noblewoman called Tefrida, who goes on to become his wife. And then he gets wrapped up in this campaign to a place called Scaldemariland, which We haven't been able to ever find on a map. It may be around Zealand, somewhere around Holland, somewhere like that. But effectively, it's the son of the Count of Flanders leading an army to punish the residents there because they owe the Count of Flanders a tribute and they're refusing to pay. And we're already told at the start of this campaign that Harry is described as one of the leaders of the army. He's drawing up the lines ready for battle. So he's already a fairly senior character in the army of the Count of Flanders, Um. The first clash for them goes really well, but then the people of Scaldomareland sort of rally and manage to gain the upper hand. And they make these demands when they've got the, the army cornered that Robert should be handed over as their leader. And the only other person that they name to de- be demanded to hand over is Heriwood, who they describe as the master of the soldiers. Um, Heriwud's plan to get them out of the sticky situation is to take 300 men, perhaps giving a little nod to the Spartans at Thermopylae there. They pose as ambassadors who are returning from a foreign mission laden with treasure and gifts and things. And so the enemy sort of rush out of their camp to all get first call on all of these fantastic riches and the trap is sprung and they're all killed. So Heriwood then next lures out another group of the army with this fake retreat. He feints a retreat, cuts them off and slaughters all of those that have followed him. And then Finally, he leads a force of 600 men, we're told, in a direct assault on what remains of the enemy camp uh, and defeats them all. And in the end, Scaldemariland pays double the tribute it owed to the Count of Flanders, such as the power of Harrywood's assault on them. Um, and the jester sort of heaps praise on Harrywood at this point, and at one point says that um, his tactics are are kind of unknown to the enemy it says it was a complete surprise and as far as the enemy was concerned beyond all their experience in warfare so he's really being positioned as this kind of great general figure who has all of these incredible tactics and probably we should just see this as an effort to build heriwood up as being uh, a worthy enemy for william once he returns to england so he has this he doesn't just appear from nowhere he has this strong past behind him so he's
4: a led quite the life, even before his rebellion kicks off then, basically.
5: He has, if we believe any of this. I think, you know, obviously we don't know how much of this is anywhere near true. Some of it is possible. It's likely that he maybe just had a, a good mercenary career that gave him a real grounding in military activity before he came back to England. On that
4: note, as a historian, how much of a challenge is it to tease out the facts from the, the fiction and the fantasy when it comes to Hereward? I mean, is, is that a challenge you enjoy?
5: I do, because it, it has that element of forensics to it, of going through and saying, can I back this up anywhere else? It's quite nice that Harrywood appears in several different sources because that gives you the chance to compare what they say about him and and when. And sometimes they contradict each other. Sometimes they, they vaguely agree with each other. The timeline of some of his revolt against William becomes really difficult to pick out from the various accounts that we have all over the place. So, I mean, I think... We can be confident that Heriwood existed, that his father was a king's thane with significant land holdings. I think we can be confident that Heriwood becomes a rebel against William the Conqueror and eventually comes to terms with the king. But how much of those exploits in between those milestones we can actually rely on and how many of them are maybe apocryphal, how many of them are moralistic tales about what the writers want us to see in Heriwood? becomes difficult to pick apart. So we can maybe tie him to Robert the Frisian, but we don't know for definite that that's who it is. This could all be hugely made up in the vein of Beowulf as a a way of explaining how a warrior becomes a great warrior in Anglo-Saxon England and around the time of the conquest. So it's really, really hard to know what sources we should believe and what we shouldn't. I think we have some really bare bones that we can hang the story from. But the fact is, it's such a great story. OK,
4: so Hereward's rebellion kicks off in 1070, 1071.
5: Is, is that correct? Um, he possibly comes back to England as early as 1068, but he's he's really going into opposition against William based at the Isle of Ely around 1070, 1071, yes.
4: So the sources tell us that the rebellion was triggered by Hereward's rage at returning to England to find both his father and brother dead both possibly at the hands of the Normans, I mean, how would he have gone about
5: whipping up support for his uprising? So the the Jester Herawadi tells us that he comes home um, because he decides he wants to find out what, what effect the Norman conquest has had on his family. You know, enough time has maybe passed since his exile. He wants to get back and see what's happening. So he comes back to find out that his father's dead and that his brother had been murdered, we're told, the day before he arrived. So that gives it this edge of... You know, he just about missed out on saving his brother. And that the Normans have taken over their manners and are living in Heriwood's house. And I think for probably for anyone who grew up around the same time as me, this story starts to sound more and more like several episodes of the A-Team crossed with Arnie's film Commando or something like that, if it didn't already sound a bit like that. So Heriwood's first move is to attack his family home and effectively slaughter all the Normans inside it. So, you know, that's that initial bloodlust drive for revenge. He kills all of the Normans that are in there. And this obviously makes him an outlaw almost instantly. And we're told that he becomes a bit of a magnet for lots of other disaffected local people. So there are lots of people being outlawed in in the wake of the Norman invasion, lots of people dissatisfied. And I guess, you know, in, in common with figures like William Wallace in the Braveheart film and things like that. He becomes this kind of single figure who becomes a core and a magnet that people are drawn to as a potential leader for their disaffection and and unrest. And before long, the sources talk about him leading this band of outlaws, um, causing trouble for the Normans. So they go out raiding and and killing Normans all of the time. Um, And obviously, the more successful he is at that, the more support he draws into himself. Um, we get a story that he goes to Peterborough Abbey at one point to be knighted by his uncle, uh, Abbot Brand, because he sees that as something that's important to him if he's going to take on this position of leading men um, and, and leading resistance to the king in England. Um, and before he really kicks off his rebellion, he even pops back across to Flanders to go and gather some reinforcements and friends there, pick up his wife, Turfrida, and then comes back really to settle into full on rebellion against William.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
5: It's almost a way to rationalise the fact that we were conquered by the French. Again, that we, we resisted incredibly well, that we have these incredible characters in our history like Heriwood, and that ultimately we acquiesced in the Norman Conquest. We sort of agreed to go along with it and allow it to happen. We weren't ever really beaten.
3: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So the
4: rebellion was centred around the fens of what's now Cambridgeshire. Now, how hard would it have been for the Normans to smoke out a...
5: a determined band of rebels from this part of England. Ely is chosen because it's virtually impossible to access without some local knowledge. So lots of the sources will talk about you need a local guide to get onto Ely. It's just treacherous marshland everywhere else, uh, and you're liable to fall in, get sucked down and drowned if you don't know exactly where you're going. So it is very much painted as this natural fortress it's protected by nature. Um, there's this small spit of land called the Isle of Ely with the the abbey, the cathedral on it, um, and a small community. And effectively, if you don't know the safe ways in, you can't get in there. So it makes it the perfect base for all of these rebels. And they're able to find, pick their ways off through the marshes, go off, kill a few Normans, steal whatever they need, get back onto the Isle of Ely. And nobody can ever catch them. So it has that element as well of all of these stories, like, you know, Robin Hood, this kind of attacking and vanishing into the mist sort of element to it as well. It seems to combine lots of these elements of famous stories that we know so well. Um, And so, yeah, they they base themselves on the Isle of Ely. Um, The Anglo Saxon Chronicle talks about them trying to join up with a Danish army that arrives. It's sort of sponsored by King Swain II of Denmark. Um, It's not clear whether they're here to invade or just to raid entirely. But there is a strong hint in the sources, particularly the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, that Hereward becomes allied to this Danish army. And William eventually falls back on this old Anglo-Saxon tactic of paying the Vikings off to leave. England. And again, that's perhaps a sign of how worried William is about the amount of things he's got going on. You know, Harrywood is one thing, but if Harrywood joins up with the Danish army, that could present a whole new problem. And so William has kind of an easy out to resurrect this idea of buying off invading Vikings, which to some extent I think is quite funny because if you think about who the Normans were, they were Vikings. So we've now effectively got Vikings buying off Viking invasions of England. And we're told also that Heriwood's uh, uncle, Abbot Brand dies and is replaced by a Norman called Turold, And as part of this, Heriwood leads his men to attack Peterborough Abbey. So we get um, instances of William uh, emptying churches and abbeys and things. They were effectively used as a, a form of early bank. So people would store their wealth there. And William becomes increasingly concerned that people are using these stores of wealth to resist him. So he goes around effectively taking it all. So, Heriwood manages to paint his attack on Peterborough Abbey as an effort to defend the Abbey, really, and to defend its riches and all of its people. So he's kind of positioning himself as a real champion of those who are feeling oppressed and pushed aside by the Normans. But William obviously can't let all of this go on. More and more people are coming to Ely. We're told that the Earls, Edwin and Morcar, make their way to Ely to join up with Heriwood as well. So this is becoming much more serious. There's a real focus. On Ely, And I think William may well have thought, do you know what? That's not so bad. All my enemies are kind of gathering themselves together in one place. That makes it nice and easy for me. And so what he does is decide to lead this great assault on the Isle of Ely. He brings an army. He finds what he thinks is the narrowest part of the fens. And he gets his men to start building this causeway. So they're felling trees all over the place. They build these kind of log platforms and they get some um, animal skins that they inflate to use for buoyancy and they build this sort of bridge across the marshes. Uh, and when it's ready to go, the Norman army sort of piles onto it. You know, I'm sure there was a big battle cry and a roar as they all ran across, and it promptly collapsed underneath them. And so many of the Normans were, were lost in the marshes and drowned that you get some sources talking about, you know, for centuries later, you could pull out Norman swords, Norman bits of armour from the marshland around Ely. And it was from this this failed assault when so many lives were lost. And only one knight makes it across to the Isle of Ely, a man named Dada. Uh, And Heriwood sort of takes him on a little tour of Ely and shows him all of their defences, really in an effort to prove how impossible it would be to assault them. And he sends Dada then back to William to explain everything that he's seen and the futility of trying to attack Ely any further. And then we get the point where... We probably stray more into sort of A-team kind of territory. And we get a story where William sort of withdraws to consider his options. And Harrywood disguises himself as a potter and slips off the Isle of Ely and into the royal encampment. He goes and sits in a pub for a little while where he happens to overhear some really useful information that we'll come back to later. Uh, he wanders around the camp a little bit before getting into the royal kitchens And suddenly there, he's almost recognised and he's taken to the King's Hall as something of a spectacle. But they all sort of agree that this guy looks like Harrywood, but he's nowhere near as tall and as big as Harrywood. Because, you know, we get this idea that the rebel must be seven foot tall and six foot wide. And this guy's, you know, he looks a lot like Harrywood, but he's nowhere near big enough to be causing us all of this trouble. So he's sent back to the kitchens where all the Norman servants there start to, to tease him. They scatter his pots around the floor and they want to blindfold him so that he'll stumble around and smash all his own pots for their amusement. And when Harrywood refuses to go along with this, one of them hits him, Harrywood loses his temper, hits him back, a guard bursts in, Harrywood promptly disarms him, takes his sword, runs this guard through, and sort of flees while being pursued by a whole group of Normans on horseback. And you get these kind of adventurous moments for him where he has near escapes, um, but William then moves on to prepare a second assault on Ely. He decides not to give up. He does appear to have some counsel that perhaps he should make peace with these people, that they're only trying to defend their own lands and all of that kind of thing. Some of his counselors are suggesting that perhaps discretion is the better part of valour. Maybe we should let them find peace. But lots of his others are feeling particularly stung and embarrassed by the fact that they can't control these people. And so they they urge William to proceed. And so he arranges this second assault on Ely, which is largely similar to the first one. They're just going to build a better causeway. They don't really have a new plan. They're just going to do it a little bit better. And when everything is built, I mean, halfway through the construction, we're told that Heriwood poses as a carpenter. All of the time, he does all of these things. He disguises himself. So he dyes his hair different colours, dyes his beard, then he cuts his hair, shaves his beard off. So he he must be running out of ways to disguise himself by some point because he must be running out of hair and beard. But he disguises himself at one point as a carpenter, works all day, helping them build all of the, the siege machinery and everything like that. And then at the end of the day, when they all put down tools, he promptly sets fire to it all, burns it all to the ground and heads back to Ely, no doubt, with a big smile on his face. But when the Normans are eventually ready. They produce this witch. And this was the part of the plan that Harrywood had heard in the pub. So she's put up on top of a siege tower and she performs a curse over the Isle of Ely. And she performs it three times. And at the end of the third time, there's this huge cracking noise. And I imagine everybody standing around looking about thinking, crikey, did that work? Is that a magic spell working? But what it actually was, was all the rushes around them bursting into flames and beginning to crack. And so, as I say, Harrywood had overheard this plan and he'd hidden his men around strategic spots in the marshes. And when the witch completed her curse, they all set fire to the whole thing. And again, we get Normans fleeing in panic, lots of them being drowned again, lots of them being burned to death, but those who make it away running away with their tail between their legs. And so there's a real sense that this is not going well for William the Conqueror. This is a man who is used to getting his way and he's used to winning. And so William then changes tactics a little bit and he seizes all of the lands of the monks of Ely that are off the Isle. So anything that he can get to, he takes into royal possession. And this works, the monks panic at this because the next step would be for them to be removed and replaced by Normans. And so they agree to show the Normans the, the safe way onto the Isle of Ely. But we're told that one of their number, a monk called Alwinus, thought that this was a real poor show and a poor way to deal with Heriwood. So he warns Heriwood and his men and allows them to escape. And they make it to a place called the Brunerswald, which is one of these huge ancient forests in Northamptonshire. And they're hotly pursued by a Norman army. William isn't willing to let this go. Um, But they use the trees as cover and they launch this kind of guerrilla attacks on the Norman army that's following them until it's so bewildered and demoralised that they're forced to turn tail and slink away again. And so we get maybe a little bit of Robin Hood slipping into the story of Heriwood there. Um, And then for reasons that aren't really made clear anywhere, Heriwood suddenly decides to give up on his resistance and seek terms with King William. He goes to William's court with a small body of men, but the Norman nobles who have been at pains to encourage William to keep fighting against Heriwood orchestrate this fight with a huge man called Ogre. And this leads to Heriwood being arrested for breaching the king's peace. So there's a strong sense there he's been set up so that he can be arrested. Um, there isn't a sense that William is actually setting him up, though. It's those who are opposed to the idea of making peace. Um, he's kept for a prisoner at Bedford Castle for about a year in the custody of a man named Robert de Horpole. Uh, he was then told to hand Heriwood over to some much less sympathetic custodians. And because Robert has spent all of this time with Heriwood, he by now likes him, because everybody who spends time with Heriwood likes him. And so Robert isn't keen on handing him over and tips off the rest of Heriwood's men so that the exchange is ambushed. Harrywood is set free. But then he almost immediately sends word again to William that he's still willing to do homage to the Norman king in return for his family's properties back. And this agreement is eventually reached. uh, And that sort of allows the adventure to end on a satisfying line. Um, And we get the conclusion that it says in one of the sources, Thus, Heriwood, the famous warrior, in many places proved and well-known, was received into favour by the king, and with his father's lands and possessions, lived afterwards for many years, faithfully serving King William, and wholly devoted to his neighbours and friends. So we get this this idea that eventually they come to terms and it all settles down and Heriwood lives a, a happy and peaceful life under William's rule.
4: Now, this is an amazing story. And as you point out, herowood was lionised by a number of medieval chroniclers. But he also appears to have enjoyed something of a Renaissance in the 19th century, didn't he? With, as you also point out in your feature, Charles Kingsley's 1866 novel, Heriwood the Wake, Last of the English, raising him up as a as a nationalist hero. Why was Herewood so celebrated so long after his death? What What is it that fired the imaginations of centuries of chroniclers, novelists and poets?
5: I think there's several elements to it. He's one of those characters, ignoring the historical figure, he's one of those characters that you can use to fit whatever story you're trying to tell in your own period, whenever it is that you're writing. So it is a great story. There's no denying that. And I think for writers in England who followed in the the centuries after the conquest, I think it was a chance to show that England hadn't quite capitulated in the wake of Hastings, so that there had been resistance and it had lasted longer and it, it had been harder than the Normans might have liked to admit. I suspect there's also an element of the the ending of Harrywood's story in particular that allowed the English to convince themselves that, like Harrywood, they'd sort of reached an accommodation with their new Norman rulers, almost as though the Normans were only in charge because the English had eventually given their consent to it in the same sort of way that Harrywood, you know, resists but then finds terms. And I think it was a way that the English could come to peace, come to terms with the fact that they had been conquered, they'd been on the rough end of this, and they could almost turn it into something that they had just accepted and allowed to happen. We're only ruled by the Normans because we wanted it that way. I think for the Victorians, it's difficult to get beyond their ideas on empire, which we find quite distasteful today. And so I think it's a a way that they were able to pluck this character from history and sort of distort the history of him to create this sense that England and then Britain was somehow different from all the other nations, that the inhabitants of this island weren't as easily crushed and overthrown as everybody else might have been, um, that they needed to find a way to rationalise the fact that England had been conquered by the French, for, for one thing. By the 19th century, the the great enemy, you know, we're not too far out of the Napoleonic Wars and all that kind of thing. It's almost a way to rationalise the fact that we were conquered by the French, again, that we we resisted incredibly well, that we have these incredible characters in our history like Heriwood, and that ultimately we acquiesced in the Norman Conquest. We sort of agreed to go along with it and allow it to happen. We weren't ever really beaten. So I think in the 19th century, for writers there, it suited their imperialist, empirical world worldview at the time. So... In your feature, you, you throw a little fly in the ointment, don't you?
4: Firstly, by suggesting that Heriwood may not have been English. And also by putting forward the theory that it wasn't necessarily concern for the plight of his dang compatriots that that drove his rebellion. I mean,
5: could you expand on these two factors, please? Yeah, I think it's always worth throwing some fly in the ointment and a, a few things to think about with things like this. And so, yeah, Heriwood. In terms of being an Englishman, what do we mean by an Englishman? Well, you know, by the time of the, the Norman invasion, England had been part of the Roman Empire. We then had invasions of Angles and Saxons. We tend to think the Anglo-Saxons were English, but they weren't. They were Angles and Saxons. <laughs> um, we'd had repeated Viking incursions into England, which had latterly resulted in settlements of Danish communities and and Scandinavian communities around England. So it's very difficult to get at the idea of what an English person was at this point. And I think, as we mentioned, you know, the Victorians adopted Harrywood as this the last of the English, the great hero before the Norman conquest, and christened him as an Englishman. But if we actually look at what we know about him, it suggests that he wasn't English, not at least native. English in the way that we might think. So the, the evidence is obviously really scant here, and it really revolves around the man we've mentioned a couple of times, Abbott Brand of Peterborough. So he's well enough recorded that we do know bits about him and his family. And he's described in the sources relating to Heriwood as his patruous, so his paternal uncle. So he's a brother of Heriwood's father. And we know that Brand has four brothers. They're called Ascatil, Siric, Siweth, and Godric. There are various different spellings of some of those names, but those are the names that we use for them. We know that their father was a man named Toki, who was a merchant from Lincoln. And we know that Toki's father was a man named Oti, another wealthy man from Lincoln. And I think the clear thing about all of those names is that they're very clearly Scandinavian, probably Danish. So we've got a, an Oti, a Toki, an Ascatel, a Siric, a Siweth. Godric is maybe the odd one out there. It's a little bit more of an English name. So it might suggest that perhaps Heriwood had an English mother, or it could suggest that by the time Godric is born, they'd been settled in England so long that they're now taking on kind of English names as a custom. They may have just liked Godric. But otherwise, it's pretty clear that they were of Anglo-Danish descent. So possibly part of... The communities that settled in England in the wake of Canute's invasion at the start of the 11th century uh, particularly in the north and the eastern Midlands uh, what had been called the Dane law um and so I think as well that the Chronicles make a big deal about Harrywood allying himself with that Danish army of Spain II which makes sense if you think he's part of an Anglo-danish community he's able to go to a Danish army and look to them for support so, we can tie those things together, I think, to suggest that Heriwood was probably of Anglo-Danish extraction, maybe second or third generation um, living in England. But rather than being this kind of quintessentially English hero, I don't even know what we mean by English by 1066. Um, he, he definitely had at least a mixed heritage, if not being predominantly a Danish person who happened to be living in England at the time. And what about his motives then for heading this rebellion?
4: you suggest that they may not have been as altruistic as has traditionally been portrayed.
5: Yeah, I think, again, it's it's part of the romanticization of his story that he is this great English rebel who was leading resistance for the whole of the the downtrodden population against the Norman invaders. But if we just look at what actually happens, he rebels because his family land has been taken by the Normans. He ends up going to William and saying, I'll stop rebelling if I can have my lands back. And ultimately, that's the settlement that is reached. There is no consideration in there for anybody else. There is no change to the the Norman regime in England as a result of Harrywood's uprising. He effectively says, if I can have my manners back, my dad's manners back, I'll stop. And when he gets those manners back, he stops. And William probably thinks this is a small price to pay to be rid of this guy who's causing him so much trouble. But Harrywood doesn't seem to look for anything beyond that. He's not concerned for the suffering of the the poorer people in England. He's really just concerned to get his own stuff back. And so while it's easy to see him, I think, as this romantic, altruistic, heroic figure who is trying to counter the Norman conquest, he really just wants his own stuff back. And when he gets it, he stops. So maybe he's not quite as noble as we think he was. I mean, it's hard to blame him in his situation, you know, he's living his life, he wants his things back. And maybe we've put too much pressure on his reputation in the centuries that have followed. And finally, Matt, why is
4: he known as Heriwood the Wake? Why is the wake the epithet that's kind of been left to
5: posterity? There are, I mean, like with everything with Heriwood, it's not entirely clear. So there are a couple of competing theories about how he ends up being called Heriwood the Wake. Um, I, I mean, I've called him Heriwood the Exile in my my book on him because I think that's more satisfactory. Um, the first time he's called the Wake, the first time we have this written down, is in the Peterborough Chronicle of the late thirteenth, uh, sorry, late fourteenth century. So, around four hundred years after Harrywood's exploits, it might have been meant to mean something like the Watchful, because of his ability to avoid capture so often uh, and to live all of these adventures. The other strong theory is that it may refer to the Wake family, who were a Norman family who moved over to Lincolnshire and took up some lands in Bourne that have been traditionally associated with Heriwood as part of his inheritance. So that adopting Heriwood for them as an ancestor may have been part of integrating themselves into the surrounding communities, as well as laying down some ancient sounding claims to the land in Bourne. So rather than thinking they're there as part of a Norman conquest kind of usurping that land, they were maybe trying to connect themselves back to Heriwood to say, oh no, this was always ours. Before the conquest, this was ours.
1: That was Matt Lewis. You can read his feature on Heriwood the Wake's rebellion against William the Conqueror in the December issue of BBC History magazine. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Susan Williams will be exploring the United States' covert programme to undermine African decolonisation.
0: Are you enjoying the History Extra podcast and want to delve a bit deeper into history? Why not take out a subscription for BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine, and receive a brand new book of your choice worth £25? Choose from either Powers and Thrones by Dan Jones, a signed edition, The Anglo-Saxons by Mark Morris, Crown and Scepter by Tracy Borman, or Soldiers by Max Hastings. Your subscription includes delivery of every issue right to your door. Receive all of this for just £22.45 every six issues. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash myhistorybook. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. See our website for further details. Overseas subscription prices are available online.
5: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.